Hey, we're going to continue our series today that we've been in. We're in a summer series that we've simply called Fit for the Journey. That's what we've called it. Our theme for this year as a church is Together for the Journey because we believe God has has called us to a journey as a local church. And part of that journey is is the launching of a, a venue in Windsor. And, and God has called us to do it together. Well, some journeys you have to prepare for. And so we live in a state, as you know, that is fitness crazed, right? I mean, over and over again, Colorado is ranked the fittest state in America. And so that's exciting. Um, we, we got to thinking, what would happen if the church became as, as passionate about being spiritually fit as Coloradoans seem to be about being physically fit? And what does that mean? What does it even look like to be spiritually fit? So that's what we've been talking about. And as part of that, we've been going through the peaks of Timberline, the five peaks of Timberline, which really are the five core purposes of the church. We've talked about our fellowship and community together and caring for each other. We've talked about serving in ministry. We've talked about reaching the world um, in evangelism, caring for the poor. We've talked about worship. And, and today, this weekend, we're going to talk about the final peak in the five peaks, and that is what we call Love Teaches. And so I've asked Pastor Brent Cunningham to join me. Pastor Brent is the pastor over that peak, Love Teaches. And so Brent, we probably should start by talking about what Love Teaches is, because yeah. when in our culture, when we hear the word teaches, we think of a classroom, with a desk and a notepad and someone up front lecturing. And some of us have good memories. Some of us have some pretty bad memories when we think about teaching. Yeah, isn't that true? I was talking with some friends of mine this week and just saying, hey, you know what? What, what images are conjured up in your mind when you think about being taught, you know, teaching, you know, that sort of setting? I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s, you know, was in middle school and high school in the 80s. You know, what, what image comes to my mind is sort of a maybe kind of a negative one is, remember the 1980s John Hughes film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Right. How many of you know exactly what scene I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Classroom, right? You've seen this, right? This movie where this kid, he's trying to get out of school, and it shows the first period class that, that he's missing, right? Where, where Ben Stein is his teacher, and he's this economics teacher, and he's just droning on and on. I mean, the kids aren't even through roll call, remember? Anyone? Anyone? He's call- And the kids are just dying. Like, I mean, we're not even through roll call yet, and we've got like an hour left, and... You know, that's that's oftentimes, you know, this image in our mind is is this thing that just drags on and on. I, I was talking to Sherry, who I work with uh, in my office, and I said, you know, what are some things that, you know, as you think about schooling and what was it like for you? And, you know, good and bad. But she said, man, I remember this teacher who if I gave an answer she didn't like or did something, she would just smack me with a ruler right on my knuckles. <laughs> and she said her brother one time who and of course, this is probably back in a day when uh, before certain hyperactivity uh, issues were diagnosed very well, she said literally her her brother was tied up in his tied to his chair for the rest of the class period because he wouldn't sit still. I guess you, you know? go to jail for that now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many of you have been tempted with your own kids? Don't you? <laughs> right, yeah. Wait, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. oh. Well, I was as I was thinking about this, the flip side of that. How many of you, I wonder how many of you, when we say the word teacher, can immediately remember a teacher you had that impacted your life in a great way? Almost every one of us in this room. I can remember several teachers as I was growing up. I was thinking about this idea of love teaches and what our hope is to accomplish through this peak at Timberline. And it made me think of my, my youngest son, Zach, who this fall will begin his second year of college. When we moved back here, um, 
uh, about almost six years ago. He, it was at the end of eighth grade. He was going into ninth grade. And, you know, when you're in junior high, your whole life is your friends. And we moved him from his friends to a new place, and he had to start all over. And it was a difficult move for him. Um, but a teacher in junior high, an art teacher named Joe McHugh, literally changed the trajectory of his life as he poured into him, invested in him, believed in him, brought out an artistic gift in in our son that he didn't even know he had himself, and we certainly hadn't seen. And to make a long story short, he starts his second year of college this fall as an art education major, literally following in the steps of this teacher who impacted his life in such a great way. And when I think about that, that is more of what we mean when we think of this concept of love teaches at Timberline. In fact, the biblical word that we use is the word discipleship. But, but that's, a, that's kind of a challenging word because in our culture it's not used very much. So, but Jesus used it, didn't he? Yeah, he really did. And what, what we want to do is read a passage of scripture. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. It's on the back of your bulletin as well and some notes to fill in here. But we're going to read a passage where, where Jesus is interacting and I think for us unfolding this whole concept of this love teaches discipleship whole thing and hopefully it'll, it'll help us understand it better. The context before I read here, verse 16 through 20, this is after Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he has appeared to his disciples. This is all in Jerusalem because that's where that took place. And he says, hey, remember our hometown? Remember Galilee? I want you to go back there and I'm going to meet you there soon. And so they go there and he meets him here on this mountaintop. And this is some of his 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 last words to to his disciples. And so uh, in verse 16, we read, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, though some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So so that's what we know is the Great Commission. And part of that Great Commission is to go and make disciples. So. What does that word disciple mean? As I said, we we don't talk about that that much in our culture. I have in church culture. I've grown up in church like you have. What does it mean by disciple? Yeah. You know, oftentimes I grew up in church, use the word disciple, love the word disciple. I think it's great. But I think it kind of carries some, maybe some negative connotations to us. If you grew up in the church, you might even think, okay, that's about my religious life. But let me suggest a word that that we can use as a substitute, which really is an equivalent to this concept of disciple. Discipleship that I think maybe gets at the heart of a little better. How many of you guys have had some sort of a job, career, vocation in which you were in some sort of an apprentice relationship, journeyman relationship, master craftsman relationship to another person? Um, okay, quite a few people. The concept of an apprentice is is the closest thing to what these this, these first century Middle Eastern Jews. We're talking about what Jesus was talking about, what his followers understood when he said, go and make disciples. You could just think of it as go and make apprentices, because think about what an apprentice does. If if I'm your apprentice and you're going to and you're going to teach me some trade first, you're just going to say, "Okay, Brent, just watch me. 
watch what I'm doing. I go, okay. So I watch, okay, yeah, you're doing this. And they explain it. This is what I'm doing. This is the why and the how. And then they say, okay, now this piece I want you to do. Remember you saw me do it? Do this. Oh, can I do a little piece? And, and they guide and they correct and they encourage. And then pretty soon they turn it over to me. And they go, okay, you know, now you're on your way. You go. You do what you saw me doing. Right? And pretty soon I'm on my own. Now the only, the only difference is, remember Jesus' words here? He says, but I'm with you always. Even to the very end of the age. So that's the only difference is Jesus never leaves us on our own. I'm, I'm forever in this apprentice relationship to Jesus. And as we think about that, here, here's a significant part and why I like using the word apprentice almost rather than disciple. Because, again, disciple kind of says, OK, that must mean like when I go to church on Sunday mornings or, you know, when I'm involved in my religious activities or whatever they might be. But apprentice means my whole life. Yeah. It means my whole life. Every part. And it means my real life, the way it really is. Because memory says all authority in heaven and on earth, earthly things, heavenly things. It's all it's all mine. Yeah. So so when we think about that in the context of of love teaches where the goal is not merely to help people make you or me or Pastor Derry or Pastor Dick or Jeff or whoever their teacher. It's really to create opportunities that will be a catalyst for people to make Jesus their teacher, truly their teacher. And in this idea of apprenticeship, we're talking about emulating his life. We're talking about embracing his values, his worldview, his interpretation of the law. That's what it meant. I've even read where, where some disciples in following the, the rabbi they were following would literally try to walk in his steps so that the dust of his feet the, of the rabbi would get on them. And, and literally, uh, even terms like sitting at his feet. We're a picture of emulating that rabbi's life. That's really what we're talking about with Love Teaches, isn't it? Exactly. And, you know, as you see here, which, again, I I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with this, but just to kind of create a a concept and the idea, you know, if you were to open up your bulletin on the inside, the top right-hand side, this is this kind of a little spotlight deal on what what Love Teaches is, more programmatically, meaning these are the things that we do programmatically to, to act as an environment or a catalyst in your life and my life to say, how do I learn to sit at Jesus' feet? How do I literally become a disciple who's, who's watching him, mimicking him, learning to do my life as he would do it if he were I? And so we create these environments, you know, things like baptism. That's a way that I begin this apprenticeship with Jesus. Things like going to a class or adult education or our Wednesday night teachings or uh, jumping into a small group. In and of themselves, that's not the end. But we do these things because in those places we say, you guys, let's let's explore this concept of what does it really mean? Because I don't fully get it. What does it fully mean to become an apprentice, a follower of Jesus and walk in his footsteps? So if, if I'm going think about this, if I'm going to let someone influence my life and mold and shape my life in the way that we're talking about here to where my life actually becomes like his life, Jesus life. It seems imperative to me that I trust him. I'm not going to let someone shape my life like that if I don't trust them. And so the core of what we want to talk about today, just quickly in the, in the next few minutes that we have, is this idea of trust. Do I trust Jesus to truly shape my life in this way? And there's three areas that we've kind of identified uh, as areas of trust that we need. Yeah. And if you have your bulletin, take a look at the back if you want to fill in some blanks. The very first one here, there, our first point, is that if I'm going to apprentice myself to the person of Jesus, the first thing I have to do is trust that he knows everything, that he is a master. He is the, the master craftsman in all areas of life. Remember the verse we read, Matthew 28, verse 18. Remember he said, 
all what on heaven and earth has been given to me. Authority. All authority. How, how much is all authority? That's like a lot of authority, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. So what, what caused Jesus' teachings to stand out? If you've ever read through the Gospels, what you'll find again and again, he's teaching. And in a lot of ways, he's very much like other rabbis of his day. The way he teaches and what he says and things he's doing, it's not totally abnormal. But in some respects, he's very different from a lot of the rabbis. And what he constantly does is, is uh, he teaches. And then when he's done, people go, you know, he taught a good teaching, but he taught as one with authority. Not as we're used to being taught. Well, how were they used to being taught then? The way they were used to being taught is the same way that decisions are made today in a courtroom. If you walk into a courtroom, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear a judge giving a verdict, but always citing precedences, right? I'm making my decision because this judge made this decision, this court made this decision. He cites or she cites precedences and then says, therefore, here's here's my decision. But they can never make the decision themselves because they're not the highest authority. Right. That's how good rabbis would teach. Well, Rabbi Hallel says this. Rabbi Shammai says this. Therefore, I say this. Jesus never did that. Have you noticed that? He would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And then he would give a teaching. And then when, when he was done, people, did you hear how we, what he did? He didn't do the normal. Why? Truly, truly. He said this 75 times in the Gospels. Truly, truly, or verily, verily. The Greek words are amen, amen. Truly, truly. I tell you. What he's saying is, I know. I know the truth. I've seen it all played out. I know what happens. I know how your soul works best. I know how you should engage and interact with other people. And what he's doing is, is claiming to be the highest authority Not just in the land, but in the universe. The highest authority on things pertaining to heaven, to earth, to all things. Yeah. Well, so so that boils down to a question. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that Jesus knows everything? Let's make it even more simple. How many of you in this room believe that Jesus knows more than you? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like that's like a no brainer, right? I mean, I guess, you know, some someone who's being really arrogant might say, no, I think I might know a little bit more. But the question is, the question is, do we live that way? So what happens when what Jesus teaches is in direct contrast to what our culture says is right? Do we are we influenced more by our culture or are we influenced more by what Jesus has said and what he teaches? Because whichever one we base our decision on is what we're really saying we believe that one knows more. What about when what Jesus teaches actually is in contrast to what we think in our own mind is common sense? Do I listen to me or do I listen to what Jesus says? Because the answer to that says who I really think knows the most. So it's a no-brainer to say, yeah, Jesus knows more. But do I live that way? Do I live my life in such a way? And that's a good point because I, th- I mean, think about how many of Jesus' teachings great against my culture or great against my own preferences, right? You know, he says things like, you know, all those things that you think you own, I want you to hold them like this with an open hand. I want you to give, you know, the first of your of your income. I want you to do all this, all these sorts of things. Um, it's better to give than to receive. You know, he says crazy stuff like that. And I'm going better. And he's not just saying that it's a nicer thing to do. He's saying it's it'll actually you'll flourish more if you're the kind of person who is giving rather than taking Is he really an expert? Does he really know about the human psyche? Has he seen that played out? He says things like love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't 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 retaliate. And he's not just saying because I care about the other guy more than you. 
what he's saying is I've seen unforgiveness. I've seen unresolved anger played out in a person's life. I'm an expert on this. I know I'm an authority. And we could stress that to whatever he talks about. You think about here's one that really grates against the culture in which we live. And that is scripture teaches us that sex is reserved for one man, one woman in the context of marriage for life. Well, our culture certainly doesn't embrace that. And so if we say he knows more, do we really live by that? What about in the area of our relationships and the area of sexuality? And on and on we could go about all sorts of different topics about how we treat people, about how we care for the poor, about how we handle our business, because we're we're infamous, you know, as Americans, we're individuals and we compartmentalize our life. And and sometimes we act as though Jesus knows more about this religious stuff, but but I, I didn't read where he ever ran a business and I run a business, so I'm gonna make the decisions here. Do we really believe that Jesus knows everything because if we're going to apprentice ourselves to him truly in the biblical concept we have to we have to first trust that, that that's true and when we ignore his teaching what we're really saying is i think i know more than him on this issue yeah i think what we're saying if we were to boil it down rob is how i view jesus determines if and how i will follow him if if i am floored by the brilliance of this man if, if I'm in awe by the sheer octane of the intelligence of this person, if I really, truly believe that he is the smartest man who has ever lived, that he's not just an authority. on He is the single primary authority in all of life. Everything pertaining to my eternal life, to my life right now, to my thoughts, to my vocation, to my relationships, to my will, everything. He is the single authority in all things. If I really see that and believe that and take that in, it will change my life. Yeah. And all of a sudden I go, maybe I should begin to follow him because he is the expert. Yeah, but now that's only the first step. I mean, let's think about this. It's one thing to believe that someone is an expert. It's another thing to believe that they actually have your best interest at heart. And that's the next thing in your outline. If I'm going to apprentice myself to Jesus, I have to trust that he has my best interest at heart. Think about this. If you could take your car to a mechanic that you believe and trust is competent, is an expert on fixing the car. That doesn't necessarily mean that that mechanic is not going to exploit you because he is an expert and you're not. And so we all know what it's like when you find a mechanic you can trust. It's a great thing because you trust not only are they an expert, but they also have my best interest at heart. They're not going to exploit me or try to take advantage of me. What if you find a mechanic who actually cares about you and even cares more about you than he does about himself? How many of you would like the number right now? Yeah, that's a pretty great thing, isn't it? All right, and that's what we see in Jesus. Do I, I trust that he knows everything, but can I trust that everything he does will be consistent with his perfect love towards me? I need to get my sister to marry that mechanic, because that's what I need in my family. I think, I think what we're saying here, and what I think is so cool about Jesus, is that I can be assured that Jesus will never exploit me. You know how I can be sure of that? This isn't a faith statement. I can be sure Jesus will never exploit me because he's not needy, right? The mechanic has his own needs. This person who's an expert has their own needs. They could potentially exploit me because they have needs to be met so they could use me in some way, right? There was a book back in the 1970s <clears throat> that was written in which the, uh, the, the author William Vanstone, he, uh, he, he's got a chapter on the phenomenology of love. 
And he says, you could have grown up in the most dysfunctional household and never have experienced true love, but you're still going to know the difference between two different kinds of love. One is this is this kind of fake false love. It's this need love. And the other is, is this true love, what he calls authentic love. And he says, think about this for a second in this fake love over here. The goal, the aim is to use you to meet my own needs. So I will exploit you in order to meet my own needs. And so in that kind of that kind of love, it's it's always conditional. Well, as long as you do this for me, I'll give you my affections. Right. But it's also non vulnerable, which which is to say, if it's not happening, if this isn't a win for me, I'm going to I'm going to cut things before I lose too much. Okay. Now, contrast that over here with 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 what he calls this true love, this authentic love. And he says, this kind of love is totally different. The aim is to spend myself for the good of the other. And so it's it's totally unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to constantly give. I'm going to constantly pursue your good. And it's radically vulnerable. I, I will do things even to the cost of myself for your good. Almost like the father in the story of the prodigal son, if you've read that story that Jesus told, where he, he does things just lavishly, I mean, to the point where it's, it's injuring the self. Because the high, my, my highest joy would be your highest joy. That's the picture. And he says the problem is this. None of us, because we're needy, I need things, I need your love, I need your affection, because I'm needy, I will never be able to perfectly give you this true love because I'm a needy person. And so he says the solution uh, is that we need someone to love us. And think about this for a second. We need someone to love us who doesn't need us. That's kind of weird sounding at first, isn't it? I need someone to love me who doesn't need me because if they need me, they can exploit me at some point. Well, who could possibly love and has no needs? Who is completely fulfilled, every need met, in and of himself? Only Jesus. Right? That's, that's the picture of the cross. Completely unconditional. Radically vulnerable. That Jesus is the only one who, who, could, who could love me deeply and not need me. So that means that he will never exploit me. So when he says things like this. You know that paycheck that you get at the end of the week? I want you to take the first part of it and give it to me. And I go, wait a minute, I, I thought you didn't need anything. Right? Don't you, don't you have everything already? You know, everything's at your disposal? And he goes, yeah. But you know what? You need to give it. Because in giving, when I give, it breaks the power that money has on my life. It controls me. When I give it, I'm breaking that power. So maybe, maybe it's not that he needs it as much as I need to give it in some way. When he says, you know what, don't don't indulge in, in anger, but but love your enemies. Again, it's not that he cares more about that person. And he's saying, you know, hey, you know, don't worry about it, Brent. No big deal. He's saying, hey, Brent, I've seen it played out. I've seen what happens when you try to exact retribution on another person because of how you've been hurt. And you end up distorting and perverting yourself and you become this bundle of anger. And I've seen it destroy lives. I'm an expert, but I'm telling you this not just because I've got my shoes on too tight. And I want you to be uptight like me. It's because this is a life of flourishing. I have your best interests in mind and I'm not exploiting. Yeah, so we can go. I mean, we go back to relationships. If I believe that he knows everything and I believe that he'll only act towards me in a way that's consistent with his perfect love. Then when he says reserve sex for marriage between a man and a woman 
for life. I can know there's a reason behind that that is consistent with his love because he understands humanity. He understands the depth of commitment. He understands sexuality, that he's acting in a way that's consistent with his love for me when he sets those boundaries in place. I remember having a conversation a while back with someone who had grown up in church, who had professed a faith in Jesus, and they they looked at me and they said, I know what the Bible says, but I'm not going to marry someone unless I live with them first to know if we're compatible. And in effect, what that says is, I know what Jesus says, but I think I know more, and I'm not sure he's acting in a way that's best for me. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. The temptation was, God is holding back on you. He told you not to eat from this tree. It's because he's keeping good things from you. He doesn't really have your best interest at heart, so go ahead and eat. And the result of that was to bring all sorts of horrible things into the human experience. So if we're going to apprentice ourselves to Jesus, we have to trust that he'll act towards us in the way that's best for us. And it's challenging, Rob, because it it hits on the deepest parts of our lives. I mean, you read something like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in which which Jesus like goes after all of these things that, you you know, to us modern individualists, we go, hey, that's private. That's me. That's, you know, my body, my choice. That's my life. That's my mind, my imagination. Stay out of that. It's like he goes after all of these personal things and he says, it's not just the actions I care about. It's not just like committing adultery and murder. It's, it's the thoughts. It's your imagination. It's, because, you know, the other things, the actions, those are just the symptoms. I'm, I'm going after the core of what's there. I want that too. You know, unchecked greed in your life. It's not just that I don't want you to have things, but unchecked greed leads to a place where you start using people to meet your needs. And pretty soon you've cut off all relationships. And all the relationships in your life are broken and messed up. And he says, I care about you. I want your best. And you cannot flourish in life with unchecked greed. You cannot flourish in life with this being consumed with worry. Because you think, well, I know better for this person. I can't really leave them in God's hands. I've seen it played out, Jesus says. And it'll eat you up. Yeah. So, so to truly apprentice yourself to Jesus, we have to trust that he has our best interest at heart even when we don't understand him. Even when he doesn't make sense. Because sometimes it doesn't make sense what we face in life and what we go through. Um, I always think about it in the context of being a parent. When I, uh, when, when, when you, every parent knows this. When your child is small, like six months old, and you have to take them in to get their shots, their vaccinations. It's the most horrible thing in the world for a parent. Because you take them in there, you've got to take off their little you know, pajama stuff. And they feel insecure when they're, they don't have any clothes on. And then you're holding them down. While this strange person with what must seem like a foot-long needle comes at them to them. And they're looking at you and they're crying. And here's the one who's supposed to love me and protect me. And you're participating in this. Now, you know, there is no way you could sit that six-month-old baby down on the way and say, Now, listen, son. What's about to happen is really for your own good. Let me explain vaccinations to you. And here's how there's no way they couldn't get it. They couldn't understand it. And so you hold them down and this pain is inflicted on them. But when it's over, what happens? It's an amazing thing. You pick up that child. They don't get it. They don't understand it. But they bury their face in your shoulder. They're crying and they wrap their arms around you and they cling tightly to you. And I think that's a beautiful picture of being an apprentice of Jesus. When we don't always understand, there's things we go through in life or will go through in life that we couldn't understand if God tried to explain it. We couldn't get it. And so the question is, will we, when we get through it and in the middle of it, will we cling to him and embrace him even when we don't understand? Or will we turn and walk away? That's a big part of being an apprentice of following Jesus. That's trust. It's trust. Point number three. 
If I'm going to apprentice myself to Jesus, I have to also trust that he can change my life. You have to trust that he can change your life. So I can trust that that he's you know, he's this ultimate authority. He really does know everything. And and I can trust that not only is authority, but he really loves me. He has my best interest in mind. He's not going to exploit me. But I also have to trust that he's up to the task, because you know what? If you're anything like most of us, you might have even grown up in a in a religious tradition, which was all about conformity. You know, what? change, change your outward, uh, outward expression, change your activities, change your behavior, conform. Look on the outside like like this standard, because, you know, this is what you're supposed to live up to. And you do it with with sweat and, you know, gritting your teeth and trying to do it. And, you know, you know, what? it doesn't work. I know areas of my life that are a mess and I've tried to fix them myself and it just becomes more of a mess. And then I have shame and guilt added onto it. It's a mess. That kind of religious system doesn't work. But I wonder if Jesus ever said anything about like a spring of living water inside you that that bubbles up in a new life. I wonder if Jesus ever said anything about like you being like a tree in which new life comes the inside of the tree and then this fruit just naturally happens all on its own. I wonder if you ever said anything about this this new life from the Holy Spirit coming inside us and making us brand new and changing us from the inside out versus trying to do it from the outside in. I wonder if Jesus ever said anything about that, because if he did, then I kind of go, okay, well, that's that's different than this self-improvement thing, because I've tried that and it fails. Is he really up to the task? Yeah, I think that's what Paul meant when he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old is past, the new is coming. He doesn't say if anyone is in Christ, he'll conform his behavior better. He says they're new, brand new mysteriously on the inset changed from the inside out, not just the symptoms, not just the behavior, but a new person. And the interesting thing is history is filled. This book, the pages of this book are filled with people whose lives have been literally absolutely transformed from the inside out by the power of God at work in their lives. In fact, this church, you're sitting in a room right now that is filled with people whose lives have been utterly transformed by their encounter with Jesus from the inside out. If we had time to bring you up on this platform one at a time, we would be astounded at the stories that would be told if we could hear this is what my life was and this is what it is now because I encountered Jesus. Jesus and he changed me from the inside and the great thing the great thing about rabbi Jesus about making him your teacher in Jesus day to be selected to be a disciple of a rabbi you had to be the cream of the crop it wasn't just anyone that got to be a a, a follower of a disciple of a rabbi but Jesus the greatest rabbi that has ever lived the one who knows all things invites whosoever will to come sit at his feet and to learn to be transformed by his work and his power. We're all invited. doesn't matter who you are, whether you have a lot of money or no money, whether you have a lot of education or no education, whether you're in trouble, your life's a mess, whether you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, or whether you're cruising along as a pretty decent person but disconnected from the God who made you. He invites all who will to sit at his feet, to declare him as teacher and to allow him to transform and change your life from the inside out. You don't have to qualify by taking prerequisite classes. He meets you right where you are and then he begins to work deep inside of you. You know, you're talking about changed lives, Robin, just hearing people profess that if we could hear their stories. One of the things that I love that that, that we do because Jesus commanded us, in fact, it's in here is water baptism. In a couple of weeks, we've got our outdoor water baptism coming up. And what I love more than anything is when we say to them, why are you being baptized? 
and they have what we call a profession of faith. They're saying, here's how Jesus intersected my life and here's how he changed it. And here here's now how I'm in this apprentice kind of relationship with him. And what's so cool is they say, and I'm trusting him. I have pulled him into myself. One of the one of my favorite pictures of trust that I love, it just because it, it kind of helps me understand it, unfolds it for me. Um, Oz Guinness. In, in uh, one of his books, writes about an interaction with, with a Maasai a tribesman in Kenya, Africa. And he, he, he talks about this idea of, you know, they're having a conversation. We need to trust God. We need to embrace him and trust him. And he, he was using a word that he thought was a trust word. You know, we need to trust God. Like and this tribesman said, no, 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 that's not the word for trust. He said, the word you're using is, is the picture of a hunter who goes after his prey from a long distance with a, with a rifle, with a gun. And he's got a scope and he's looking at him a long ways away and he's going after him like that. He said, that's not trust. The word we use for trust is, is the picture of, of when a lion goes after his prey. And when he sees it, his eyes bulge and the fur on his back stands up and every muscle is tense with anticipation. And he slowly moves to it. And then in this death jump, he jumps on top of it and with his front arms pulls it into himself and he consumes this animal. And he says, that's the word for trusting God. And he says, the way a lion hunts is the way a man trusts God. (laughs) That's the picture of trust. It's not from a distance. So I have to ask myself that question as I have apprenticed myself, if I've apprenticed myself to Jesus, has have I understood it as this kind of long distance thing? Jesus is way down there. and I'm looking at him through the scope or am I am I so close to him that I have pulled him into myself that with this desperation said, I need you to help me figure out not just this whole religious thing or what I think is religious. I need to help you. I need you to help me figure out all of life, all the relationships, all the difficulties I have. Hmm. That's trust. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we begin? Well, I think I think we start by simply asking. That seems to be a principle of the kingdom is that is that we ask that we express to Jesus emphatically and repeatedly that we desire to see him as as he truly and fully is. And, and, And if we're not there yet, then we ask him to give us the desire to desire him. I love the prayer that A.W. Tozer prayed. He said, Lord, I thirst to be thirsty for you. I can't even say I thirst for you, but I want to be at a place where I thirst for you. And so it begins with asking. But but then there's other steps we can take in yeah. this apprenticeship. I think after asking, another thing that I need to do to apprentice myself to Jesus is, is to immerse my life in the person of Jesus. I need to immerse my life in the person of of Jesus, one of the most um, famous Bible passages. I bet if I if I read it to you, it comes from John chapter eight. Remember, Jesus said, "You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." Okay, so most of us we've heard that. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll experience liberation and truth. But I wonder how many of us know the statement that comes right before that, because that's a really cool promise. You want to be free? You want to be liberated? You want to have truth? Yeah. Well, here's the conditional statement. Here's the the sentence that comes right before that in uh, John eight thirty one. If you dwell in my word, this is Jesus speaking, if you dwell in my word, you are really my apprentices and you'll know truth and that truth will set you free. To immerse yourself in Jesus is is to center your life on his teachings, on his person and not just study them, though that's important, but begin to practice them, incorporate them into your life. Learn how to walk and look and live and believe and think like your master, like the master craftsman. And, and then the third thing that I would say is I also need to surround myself with the lives of people who have apprenticed themselves to Jesus. If you want to become like someone, then hang out with them, rub shoulders with them, live with them, see how they do. Like, how, how do they respond when they're slighted? 
How do they respond when someone steps on them? How do they respond? Because that's how I learn how to do it. That I, I, I surround myself with those people. And that, again, that's why we say things like, you know, hey, go to that adult education class. Join a small group. You know, come to the Wednesday night teaching. Why? Because in all those places, all those settings, we're exploring what is this thing of apprenticing myself to Jesus? What does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? Does it mean this or that? And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. So it comes down to a decision. And I want to invite you to make a decision. So if you just close your eyes, maybe bow your heads with me. And I just want to ask, if you're here today and you know in your heart, as God's Spirit is working on you, you need to make a commitment to apprentice yourself to Jesus. To make Him your teacher in the way that we've been talking about. For some of you, it's for the first time in your life. The first time that you're going to turn from living for yourself and trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins and declare Him as King. He's Lord over your life now. For some of you, it's the first time. For others of you, it's, it's a renewal of that commitment to, to once again sit at his feet and allow him, regardless of what culture says, regardless of even your own desires, allow him to mold and to shape your life into the person that he's called you and created you to be. If you're here this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed, you say, include me in this prayer because I need to make a commitment to apprentice myself to Jesus. Would you just raise your hand right now and say, that's me. That's where I'm at. Thank you so much for being so honest and vulnerable. Jesus, you see our hands. They're lifted to you. We are overwhelmed by your love that you know everything about us and you love us anyway. That you meet us right where we are. No matter who we are, you invite us to sit at your feet. But as we sit at your feet, you will not let us stay the same. You will mold us and shape us, not merely on the outside, but on the inside, into the kind of person you want us to be, and that will be reflected on the outside. And so we say yes to your invitation today. Some of us, we're saying yes for the very first time in our lives. Others of us, we're renewing that commitment to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to live under your rule as part of your kingdom and to express that kingdom to the world in the way in which we live. Thank you for allowing us, inviting us to be at your feet. Amen. Amen. Okay, for our benediction today, we're going to read Psalm 1, 1 through 3. And think of this in terms of a picture of someone who is spiritually fit. Alright, so it's going to be on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the seat way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's a spiritually fit. Let's be spiritually fit people. All right. If you would like someone to pray with you, we have prayer teams in both auditoriums that would love to meet you and pray with you. Otherwise, you can consider yourself dismissed. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.